invite you to turn in the Word of God to Hebrews 4, Hebrews chapter 4. Those of you who have been praying for Eileen Burns, uh, the baby has been breached for some time. Thankfully, the baby has turned, so thank you for praying. Thank the Lord for that. It's just a matter of days before that child is due. And then, for those who may not be aware, I know those in the choir got an update from Paul, Dr. Overly, yesterday, uh, just with regard to his father, who was expected to pass away, and for no apparent reason has rallied in a way that now the doctors say he could be, he could be around for several weeks or longer. So there's no real human explanation for that, but the family been there, but it causes obviously some maybe challenge for the family. Do they come away, go back to work, come back here in the case of, of our brother Paul, or do they stay? So I do pray for them. And uh, though you don't know, uh, Paul's dad, he watches on here and has done for a long time, every Lord's Day. So he's been very much a part of our services in that fashion. Hebrews chapter 4 is where we are today. As we continue our study in Hebrews, I want to read again from verse 1. We've looked at the opening few verses of this chapter. We're going to take in a section that gets us as far as verse 11, with the Lord's help. But Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, let us hear the word of the Lord. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying, And David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest... He also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, let us neighbor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Amen. Ending the reading of God's Word at verse 11. Let's pray once again, beloved. Seek the Lord for his help as we look at his holy word together. Our God, we pray that Thou wilt receive our thanks for answered prayer already as we think of Paul and the family and your mercy to them, as we think of the baby in the womb of Eileen Burns, we're thankful for answered prayer. We ask you will continue to hear prayer 
And we ask that this baby will be delivered safely. We pray also for others that are with child, that thy hand would be upon them. And we ask, O God, that you'll continue to bless each of us with the grace of not only the blessing just of, of having children, but the responsibility and the need to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We have children here today. We pray that each one of them would be saved. We thank you for those that do profess and seem to back up that profession with desire and longing to obey the Lord and apply His Word to their lives. For those where it may be empty, a profession but no possession, a, an appearance but no reality, we ask that you will save them. Bring them even this day to consider the claims of Christ and their need to be saved. So God, we pray simply now, as we look at your precious Word, that you'll take us from a fleshly, carnal consideration of your Word and bring us by the power of the Spirit to see the beauty of every Word of God. Come then, may your presence be with us. Fill this house, speak to every heart, and magnify Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let me once again begin by addressing the children that are here. Children, if I may ask of you your attention. Uh, how do you respond when you're asked to go to bed? I know that children are different with regard to this. and Some quite happily obey and they go to bed without too much fighting or uh, resistance. And then others, it's, it's a whole big deal to go to bed. And then, of course, you have the ones that are in between who seem to go to bed, but then they always reappear again because they always need that glass of water, a cup of water, whatever. There's, an, there's always another reason. Even when you send them to bed with the cup of water, they still find another reason to come out again for another hug and another kiss or whatever before going to bed. It seems as if in early youth, there is this reluctance to, to rest, to, to enjoy rest. It seems to be a, a chore or a, a real difficulty to just go to bed and, and enjoy rest. But somewhere along the way, as you age and mature, uh, that seems to shift, doesn't it? Where the adults are looking for reasons to go to bed and the opportunity to, to be in their beds and maybe get to bed a little earlier on occasion and not be pressed with all the burdens and responsibilities of life. I bring this up because the chapter before us places a heavy emphasis on the subject of rest. Now, it's not to do with bed. The Bible does talk about that. We are told about the importance of rest and the God giving His beloved sleep, and it is referring to physical rest that He gives to His people. But the rest here is different. It is not the same as the rest we've been discussing in the opening moments. The previous chapter, I, I need you to keep in mind, if you're to understand chapter 4 of Hebrews, you need to be aware of what's happening in the previous chapter. In the opening verses of Hebrews 3, you will remember that there's reference to Moses, and there's a comparison between Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in that, just to give a summary of the opening six verses, basically the point is this, Christ is superior. Christ is superior to Moses, but not in a way that diminishes Moses or make, making him seem like something insignificant, Moses is still considered faithful. Verse 2, Moses was faithful in all his house. The distinction is that one was a servant, the other is a son. And so there's an elevation of Christ over Moses. Now that's important. 
Because whenever he proceeds, that is Paul, when he proceeds in in chapter 3, he begins to bring to the fore the language of Psalm 95. And the whole point then is because Psalm 95 brings us back to the day of Moses. And in Moses' day, as he declared the gospel and declared the truth to his generation, the sad reality was that many of them did not hearten, did not listen, did not mix the word with faith. And they failed to enter into the land of rest, the land of promise. You know that, the generation that perished in the wilderness. Now, the point then of that is that since Moses declared the truth and called the people to lay hold on the promise of God and to enter in, and they refused, and God judged them, and they perished in the wilderness. Since Christ is a superior prophet to Moses, it cannot be contemplated that the judgment should be less. And so when you come to chapter 4 and the beginning, we are warned, we are exhorted, let us therefore fear lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed to enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. The, 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 the exhortation is fear. Fear. This is not a light matter. If the word of the prophet Moses was not hearkened to, and God did not take that lightly, then when Christ comes and declares his truth to this generation as he has, if, you're, if that word is not mixed with faith, you can have no guarantee of rest. Now, let me step back a little more and remind you that This whole letter is being written, I've said to you before, really you should look at it more like a sermon in which the apostle is declaring a message and he has a congregation before him and in that congregation he is well aware of a temptation to go back to Judaism and to leave the profession of faith and trust in Christ. They had come to a point where they saw that in Jesus of Nazareth, this is the promised Messiah. They had realized it just as clearly as Simeon had recognized it at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But something stepped in. Challenges have overwhelmed them. The pressure of unbelieving family members still rooted in the synagogue, still rooted in Judaism. The pressure of the economic challenges that was facing Christians in their day. These things and other things were all piling upon them bringing a very real temptation to leave Jesus Christ and go back to the old way of Judaism. Well, if they do that, there is nothing for them to really go back to. And as far as Judaism was concerned, there were two rests that they were aware of. And this is where we come back to this whole idea of rest. Two rests that come out in this chapter that are significant, that the Jews understood. The first is the rest of creation. And that gets brought out, you see, at the end of verse 3. 
Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. That's the creation rest. They knew that. The Jews knew that. Judaism didn't just cut out the early part of Genesis, like, like some in the church do today, almost. No, there was a rest, a Sabbath, an institution given by God in Genesis chapter 2. God made everything and then rested. We'll see that in just a moment. But there was another rest. And that other rest is what is drawn attention to in, in Psalm 95, isn't it? Where David and his generation places them back to that generation in Moses' time that were promised the, uh, the, the land and if they would enter into, there would be rest for them. And so you have rest in terms of creation and rest in terms of Canaan. And if you go back to Judaism, that's what you've got. If you go back to Judaism, you, yes, you have the Sabbath that's been there from creation. And you have the promised land. And again, this is, this is before the fall of Jerusalem, before AD 70. So they're still there in that land. And you, you can say to yourself, well, we have the land. They don't have all of it, but we have some of it. So you have the creation Sabbath. You have the Canaan rest, as it were. But the argument, and I need you to get this before we proceed, the argument of the apostle is, if you leave Christ, you leave the rest that matters. There is another rest. In fact, it is a rest that is typified by the Sabbath of creation. It is typified by Canaan. And if you abandon Jesus Christ, you go back and you find two rests, but you don't have the third. And again, let me, let me just step back. I know not everyone is here every Lord's Day at times. You miss sermons, and I don't know if you get up to date by listening to the messages when you have opportunity through the week. But that's the relevance of Psalm 95. Because David is writing Psalm 95. He is writing it to a people in a time where they had a Sabbath given there from creation, and they have the land that they've already entered into and possessed. And yet David is saying in Psalm 95, centuries after entering Canaan, there's still a rest that each generation needs to press into. And that's why it's so relevant in this era, in the first century, and why it's so relevant to us today. Because every generation has to step into this rest, has to possess this rest. And you can say, well, I'm a good Jew and I have the Sabbath. And I'm a good Jew and we have our land. But the point of the apostle is, if you don't have the third rest, you perish. You're lost. And so you see then the language of verse 11 where we ended our reading. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And the example, the example is a people who had the Sabbath and who were promised the land. But the real point isn't about just the Sabbath having that, the creation and Canaan. The real point is Christ. Do you have Christ? So that really is the heart of the message to you. Do you have Christ as your rest? Do you have Christ in a way that He brings rest? 
Rest from what? Rest from your sin. Rest from fear of eternity. Rest from fear of even the present. When you have Christ, there is rest. So, let us consider this together. There remains a rest. There remains a rest. So we say, first of all, the rest of creation. There is the rest of creation. Verses 3 and 4, we've already read at the end of verse 3. This is part of verse 3, not all of it. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day and this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. If you wish to turn there, this is Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. And the world has been made in six literal days. I need you to get that. <laughs> I need you to get that. The world was made in six literal days. I was just watching again a video uh, came across my path yesterday of William Lane Craig, great apologist, so he thinks. And yet he undermines, it's not all bad, but he undermines this. I want you, because he was being asked about the opening chapters of Genesis. And, and are these actual days and so on? He's saying, no, no, they're not. And let, let me just show you why that's a problem. Go to, go to Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 20. Now, you, you may have looked there in, in Genesis 2 just to remind yourself of what God said or what was recorded about the Lord. That he rested. But in Exodus 20, and I want you to imagine, okay, I'm, I'm going to expound Exodus 20, the Decalogue that's given to us. The commandments. And of course, you come to the fourth in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? Why? We're given a reason. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it, Thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. In other words, pull everything back. All unnecessary work ceases one day a week. And not just for you, who are the head of the household, for everyone. Pull all unnecessary work back. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Now, if you're reading that, God is declaring this to Israel. And he's grounding this commandment in historical events. And he says in six days. What, what, how can they relate to that? Six days to them is six literal days. That's what it has to be, doesn't it? Because that's how their day looks. They, they, can't, they can't start, you know, extending out and say, well, maybe each day means a thousand years or maybe it means some, you know, undefined period of time. Well, what would that do to the commandment? The strength of the commandment is based upon the historical reality of God making the world in six literal days. Patterning man's time in this way. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. I, I, I wasn't going to, but I want you to go to, to Deuteronomy uh, as well to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Just to point something out about 
how God gives to his people reasons for, for remembering one day a week. So you have in Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, So Exodus 20 is the beginning, you know, the, the creation of Israel as a nation, the law being given, and restating what was already written on man's heart. And then that generation perishes, and before they enter into the promised land, Moses preaches essentially his, his last words in Deuteronomy, and the law comes up again. And in verse 12, keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it, set it apart, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember, creation? No. Remember, redemption. Remember, that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Now that is very important. Very important. Because you have two arguments being given for the importance of this day. One is, this is how God made the world. And he establishes a pattern, a pattern, in which he rests giving to Adam an understanding of what he is to do one day a week. God labored six days. What's that telling Adam? You need to labor six days. But there's one day a week you have to stop. And so when the commandment is given and issued in Exodus 20, it's remember, this, is, this isn't something that is cultural, right? It's not cultural for Israel. It is creational. It spans the globe. It's rooted in the very fabric of the world that God made. You can't escape it. But then he gives them another reason. A redemptive one. Now, I am getting ahead of myself here. But let me say it, lest I omit to put it before you. But nothing has changed with regard to this. We meet on a pattern of working, laboring, doing our duties six days a week. And then we have a day where we stop. And there are two things that come to the fore in this day. It's this day. This day. Two things that come to the fore. God made the world. And He made me. He owns me. He owns me by the fact He made me. And so we have, we have songs of praise that acknowledge that. They focus on that. Who made all things. And we, we think about Him creating all things. Many of the Psalms focus on that aspect where worship is given because God made us. But then other words are sung by us and recalled by us that are redemptive, where we're thinking not just about He owns me because He made me, but He owns me doubly because He redeemed me. He sent His Son to die for me. And that's not just New Testament. This is what I want you to get. That's what God was teaching Israel back then. His old covenant people. He's saying to them, yes, you were given a reason. When Moses first delivered this to you, the reason given was God made everything. In six literal days, he worked six days, rest of the seventh, that's the pattern for you to follow. 
But here's another reason. Remember you were redeemed. You were in bondage. You were a people with no liberty. You were people enslaved to another nation. You were people without freedom. You were people where seven days a week you were, you were caused to, to grind out an obedience to another master. Well, I'm your master. I'm your God. You rest. It is a gift. It is a gift. A gift to a people. And this is, you know, you come to a time when the Lord's Day gets attacked, right? The Lord's Day gets attacked. And people, people attack it as to, why have, why have this? Or why have one day in seven and all? The only nations that ever have the luxury of questioning it are nations of exceeding prosperity. Where really you probably don't even have to work six days a week anyway. You really have another day of rest for your body. Now you're wondering, well, why can't I get to do what I want on the other day? If you were made to work, sun up to sundown six days a week, the relief of one day in seven, you could not ignore. But it all goes back to creation. And of course, God rested not because he was exhausted, right? And we know that. What's that goes, <laughs> I've done my work. We, we get that. That wasn't the reason. So why did he rest? Why did he rest? As a pattern. As a pattern. Adam needed to get this. And I, I think it fascinating that Adam is made on the sixth day. All right? At some point in that day, he was made. And he's, he's, he's raring to go, fulfill God's will for his life. And then the first full day given to him, he's like, I'm ready to work. And God says, no. Nope. No, I'm resting. And you're going to rest. You have to see the work that I have done. You have to take in the work that I have done. Oh, beloved, is there not in that the reason why we're gathered here as well? We stop so that we can actually think about what God has done in making the world and redeeming our souls. God rested from creation. He didn't rest from providence. I remember that's how the short catechism deals with the decrees of God. Short catechism, question eight. How doth God execute his decrees? As how is his will all governed? He executed his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So in providence, he was still working, because if he wasn't, the whole world would fall apart. So it wasn't like he stopped working entirely. There are works of necessity, and even that was being done by God on the day that he rested. He ceased from creating, but he continues in upholding. And this is pointed out in John chapter 5, when Jesus says, God the Father worketh and I work. They both work even on the Sabbath. God is not an idle God. But this is what has been pointed to. This is my point. The Jews had a rest. It was that rest rooted in, established in creation. Don't, for, don't forget that. It's in creation. It's not just appearing in Exodus chapter 20. Israel becomes a nation. God gives this commandment to them. Then with the outgoing of the old covenant, the incoming of the new covenant, therefore we do away with that. No, no. It was there from creation. It comes up in Exodus chapter 16 before 
Israel is made to be a nation, before the covenant is made, because it is written on the heart of man. One day in seven. One day in seven. I don't want to be too harsh here, but I do need you as a congregation over which I have responsibility. I need you to be aware that if you randomly take whatever gospel preaching churches there are in this city and in the surrounding area, and you hear there's a gospel preaching church, that's true enough. You'll go there, you'll hear Christ lifted up as the only way of being saved and right with God. You'll hear that. But if you go in there nine times out of ten, you're going to walk into a place that will tell you that that commandment written with the finger of God on tablets of stone is no longer relevant. That's what you're going to be told. And what I'm telling you is this. They are blessedly, wonderfully, better than their state of theology, as others have put it, because they still have a day of rest. But there's actually no grounds for it. In other words, when you take that theology and take that doctrine, the logical outcome is that you can go back to being under Pharaoh. If you ever have a master who says to you, you're going to work seven days a week, your God has no problem with it, you have no theological response. None. You're going right back to Egypt, right back to slavery, and you have no theological grounding to oppose it. Nine out of ten, maybe more than nine out of ten. And I'm just talking about the faithful churches. Otherwise faithful churches in this area would have you become slaves. Now the way they frame it is that we make you a slave. Oh, because you're setting this as a commandment. We make you a slave. No. <laughs> it's a gift. It's a gift. Given to a people set free. Given when the world had no sin. A gift for man. So God then sets the pattern. And the Jews knew this. So they, 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 of course they had their Sabbath. And they kept it rigidly in many regards. Of course there were other ways in which they completely disregarded it. Which is a, something for another time. There was all sorts of additional rules, all sorts of navigating it in ways where they could uh, actually avoid keeping it the way God would require. But the point is, there's the rest of creation. We have then the rest of Canaan. Verse 5. And in this place again, in other words, in a certain place, there's a seventh day, there's a rest, that's the creation rest. And then in this place, again, if they shall enter into my rest, there's another rest. Takes us back again to Psalm 95, that's what he's quoting from. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So you see that verse 5 and verse 6 is saying, there is this rest, it's this Canaan rest, and in the history of the event, when it was first preached, some didn't enter in. Verse 7, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, again, this is Psalm 95, after so long a time it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, not Jesus, there is Joshua, 
So the, the underlying word is the same translation. Joshua would give you greater understanding. It's the same word. Joshua, Jesus, the same name. But Joshua gives you greater clarity. This is talking about the Old Testament Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? So his point is this. If, if, if that, there is this Canaan. It brought about a promise of rest. The people were to enter into it. But they failed through unbelief. But David brings it up again. And he's saying, in his day, in his day, there's still a need to enter into the rest. And the point is this, Canaan typified. It pointed to this third rest. This is, this is the argument, because the Jew says, we have two rests. We don't need another rest. And Paul is saying, no, there is this third rest. It's there in Psalm 95. It was typified in Canaan. Now, Canaan depicted a place of rest for the people. We know this. Deuteronomy 12. I'll read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 12, verse 9. We're told, You're not come, you're not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about, so that ye dwell in safety, and so on and so forth. He's pointing out this is rest. You're going into rest. Canaan typifies another rest. It was a real experience of rest. Now, this was the people in bondage. They had not their own land. God is giving them a land. They had no rest in the land of their bondage. Now they're being given rest in the land that has been promised to them by God. And actually, what you find is, especially through the judges, you can't take time to turn to this, but if you read through the judges, you remember judges, where you have a generation after Joshua that rises up that doesn't know the Lord, and they, in their apostasy, God brings judgment, and someone comes against them, and then they cry out to God, please deliver us, and God raises up a deliverer, and that deliverer comes and sets them free. What you find over and over again now remember, who's, who's their God at that time? God is, is their king, as it were. He is leading them, he's governing them. But when they turn away from them, from him, they lose rest. And so you find over and over again, when they cry out to God, this deliverer comes and they're given rest round about. They're given rest. That's the promise of what is being given to them when God is their king and they trust and believe in him. So Canaan then, in various ways, points us to this experience of rest. And the connection then between creation and Canaan, is there one? Well, of course. Creation is Eden. The promised land has its own Eden-type characteristic in that there was a place where God was known. It was a sanctuary to them to meet with God. There are a lot of overlap there. So really you have this sense of rest, both creation and Canaan, that they can enter into. In fact, if you... If you read Exodus 15, verse 17, as many do, you, you will see that. You may want to turn there for a moment. But if, as you turn to Exodus 15, when you read the garden, uh, about the garden in Genesis, sometimes you have to stop and ask yourself, what kind of a place was this? Now, you know, what, what do you know about it? You know that four rivers flow out of Eden. What does that tell you about Eden? 
it tells you that it's elevated above the rest of the world. It's a mountain. On some description, some kind of a mountain anyway. All the rivers flow out of it. They flow down. Now, gravity was a play then, just as it is today. And so the rivers are flowing away from there. The rivers are flowing out to the world from Eden, the sanctuary where Adam and Eve could meet with God. In Exodus 15, 17, it says, Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. And you have Mount Zion. And she's the same. And her blessing, there is a river. The streams rob make glad the city of God. And it's flowing out. It's the same kind of symbolism and message. You have Eden. You have the promised land where God is known in both cases. And so you have some correlation between Canaan and creation. So that's what the Jews understood. Now before we close, then we come to this third rest. And here is the driving point. If Joshua, verse 8, had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. In other words, if they had had that rest, David couldn't have written the psalm. But he did write the psalm. Because there's a rest that remains. And this is what he speaks on verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, what's happening here? Well, verse 9 is very interesting for a number of reasons. Not least of which is that with all the repetition of the word rest that you have in this chapter, in every single case, you have a certain word that is used. Until you get to verse 9. And verse 9, seemingly out of nowhere, for what some might say is no good reason or highly confusing, Paul writes, there remains sabbatismos. There remains a Sabbath or a keeping of Sabbath to the people of God. If you take the traditional understanding, let me back up, if you take the widespread understanding in many evangelical churches today, mostly dispensational, or New Covenant Theology churches. Not talking, about, not talking about churches, if they're 1689, Westminster Confession, Sava, if they're based in the Magisterial Reformers and the Reformation Movement, then that's not the case, largely speaking. But the vast majority of evangelical churches, especially the big ones today, they're, they're not based, they're not, they, their theology is not rooted in the Reformation, at least <laughs> in many regards. And certainly with regard to the law of God. If they're right... This, this, is, this is the strangest thing for Paul to just throw out a Sabbath. Now, various arguments have been given, and I can't summarize them all for you. I have to say, John Calvin's even wrong here. He's not as wrong as the average person you'll meet today, but he doesn't quite get it here. John Owen is the master, probably when it comes to the entire book of Hebrews, I think that could be argued, but certainly when it comes to this text, and arguing the reason, there's, there's a reason, there's a theological reason why Paul uses sabbatismos right here. 
So before we leave, I want you to try and grasp what's happening here. There remaineth therefore a Sabbath, or a keeping of Sabbath, to the people of God. I already told you that in Genesis 2, the creation one, God is giving a pattern. And that pattern is for the present, because Adam was to exhibit it immediately. The, wait, the, the one day in seven wasn't to be waited at the future, it was to follow immediately. But it also had future. It promised to Adam ongoing rest if he obeys. If he obeys. Now, Adam doesn't. And he forfeits that rest. And is, should die immediately and go into a place where there's no rest. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched and men suffer unimaginably. That's where Adam should have gone. God comes with a message of the gospel. And he tells Adam there's a way. And in all of grace, he clothes him with the coat of skins and puts him right before God. And Adam believes it. And you know he believes it because he turns to his wife and he names her Eve, the mother of the living. He believes in life because of what God has promised to him. So creation is pointing to not only a present keeping of Sabbath, but a future Sabbath. And Adam, Adam, while he maintained one day in seven, there was much in the way that he was held back from. There was a future experience of peace and rest that he was looking for that the seed of the woman would bring. Now, the question then is, if, or let me reword it, since Christ has come, and finished his work, does verse 9 mean that this rest, this Sabbath now, is perfectly fulfilled in him, and that we have it purely by faith in him alone? Or is there something more? And I put it to you, there's something more. There's something more. You don't just get this Sabbath by faith in Christ alone. What was the Sabbath? It was a pointer. It was a type. It was like a priest in the Old Testament. It pointed to something. Now let me ask you, when does the priests and the tabernacle and everything, when do they all go away? When the fulfillment comes. Perfectly and fully. And the whole point here is, none of us, have perfectly entered into that rest. We, we have the promise, and we're to enter in through faith and belief. But the type only goes away when you get that full rest. Now let me underline that for you by what I said last time when we were looking at this. This is important. You need to follow. Please put your thinking caps on. Give yourself a slap just before we close here. Verse 1 of chapter 4, there let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. I told you there's, there's a key here about the word promise. The promise of rest. And when you start looking through Hebrews, remember the verses I looked at, Hebrews 6, verse 12. Go to Hebrews 6, verse 12, just quickly. So you follow me here. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? There's something inherited more in the future. This is more fully seen, I think, in the other verse I gave you, Hebrews 10, verse 36. 
Now, Hebrews talks about promises a lot. I'm just bringing the clear ones out like I did last time. Hebrews 10, 36. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. The point is this. The full experience of the promise, and this gets underlined in Hebrews 11, where we have exemplified the faithful saints. The full embracing of the promise is yet future. It is in one sense true, right? You believe it now, you have to believe it now, but you experience it fully in the future. If Christ is the complete fulfillment of the Sabbath, in the sense that we have no more worries and no more stresses and no more concerns at all in this world, then the type can go away. But the promise, the promise is yet future. The full experience of the promise is yet future. And the point is this then. You have to believe the promise now, but there remains this this day for the people of God, not just in Christ, but in the actual keeping of the day that still reminds us of all we have in Christ, just as it did in the past. Now, if you step away from that, if you ignore the day, you haven't got the pointer of all that you have in Christ. You have still more to receive from Christ, more rest. You have sorrow over sin. You do. You have sorrow because of the consequences of sin. And nothing is more real than when we see people die. Because that's what God said. The day you sin, there'll be death. And that's still marking this world. The Sabbath tells us of a day. No more death. No more separation. No more sorrow. No more tears. Anxieties, worries, everything is gone. Christ has purchased for us. And we come as a free people one day to recognize that, acknowledge God, and thank Him for it, and place our focus afresh on the Lord Jesus and all that He has accomplished on our behalf. That is the understanding of the text. And I say again, if you reject, and I know there are all sorts of questions that come up, well, why the change of the day, and all the rest of it, that's for another time. What does it mean in Romans 14 that there shouldn't be dispute over days? What does Colossians 2.16 talk about that, you know, don't let anyone hold you in terms of days? That's for another time. I don't have any time to deal with those now. But verse 10, I suggest to you, is actually telling us about Jesus Christ. He that is entered into his rest. Christ has entered into his rest. He also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. I believe that's a right understanding of the text. Owen took that view. Others have taken that view. And then the exhortation comes to us in verse 11. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. Lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Enter into Christ and maintain, again, sabbatismus. There's a day. There's a day. We call it the Lord's Day now because that's what it's called in Revelation 1. In that first century, when the church was establishing and building itself and getting clarity, the Jewish Sabbath was a day of evangelism. It wasn't a day of worship. It was a day of evangelism. 
They went every seventh day to evangelize. But the pattern that establishes after not too long is that the first day of the week becomes the day in which Christians now gather and worship their risen Redeemer. John 20. Acts 20. 1 Corinthians 16. You bring the tithes and offerings, you bring your blessings on the first day of the week. That's the pattern. Because Christ has risen from the dead. We are free people, beloved. God has given us a day. And the devil wants to take it from us. The world wants to take it from us. But without it, the preaching of the gospel is no longer proclaimed. Not in the way that it is currently. You want to keep a people in, in ignorance of the truth? Take away their day. Take away their day. It is the day where God comes to man and he declares the glories of his person and his work and says simply, believe. Believe. And when the devil steals away that day and you become slaves to another culture or you believe some theological lie that steals away the day from you, you steal away the very opportunity God has appointed for you to hear words of peace. And the next generation that follows in your footsteps, they don't know where they can get peace. They don't know where they can get rest. Believe on Christ. Let me say to you who are not saved, labor to enter into that rest. Labor. A preacher, is it not by faith alone? Yes, it's by faith alone. But the idea is, the idea is cast off every, everything that hinders Oh, what, what might my friends think? Throw away their opinions. What might happen in my work? Throw away the fear. Labor to enter into this rest. And beloved, it's a joy. I love the Lord's Day. I do. I love it. Do you love it? Do you love it? Or are you so prosperous that you can't see the glory of God giving you? Look, here's one day. Come, acknowledge, and behold your God. Do you love it? Does the Sabbath sunrise come up and you think, yes, not I have to worship God, but I get to worship God with His people. A little insight into what that, that full Sabbath will be. It's as close to heaven as you're going to experience. Until the day he takes you to be with himself. And so it's, if, you, if you're going to heaven, then you want to experience something of it. And the Lord's day is as close as you're going to get. Love it. Love it with all your heart. Love it because of the Christ that it proclaims. Yes, there remains a rest. There's a Sabbath. Christ and the type. Let me say this. I was talking, this is the last thing I'll say. You've been patient with me. Thank you. I was talking to Gap Reverend Beers, who was here for a Reformation weekend. I was talking to him about this. You know what he said? Think about this. 
the only place where there's no Sabbath is hell. Eternal punishment and no rest from it. You have it here. You have it in the future. Praise God for his mercy. Let's bow together in prayer. There's a word in Isaiah 11 speaking of the day of Christ. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. There's much in there. But at the very least is Christ purchasing rest for his people. And Gentiles, such as I think all, if not most of us are, participating in that rest. So come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Lord, we pray, bless us with a greater experience of this rest. We don't do away with what you've given until we enter fully into all that is promised to your people. And there remains much of the Sabbath to be experienced by us. Christ has given much to our souls, but our bodies have much in the way of stress and toil in this life. And we thank you that one day is coming when we are in Emmanuel's land and there is a full experience of Sabbath for us. And what a day that will be. Until then, make us to be those who frequent Christ for rest. Help us to do it every day. And then one day a week, make it that market day of the soul in which we more fully think of him as our creator and our redeemer. This we pray, giving thee our thanks. In Jesus' name, may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.